So you all have been doing a phenomenal job um, talking about race and how apropos in today's climate. So I'm excited to welcome the saints of God. I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe people are on the line that aren't even believers, um, as this can be a witness and testament for God. Sometimes coming in the back door talking about an issue, prayerfully the Holy Spirit will grip your heart and you'll sense and feel the love of Jesus Christ even during this time. I am excited to talk about some hard stuff. I'm also excited to talk about um, things that I think will be very, very practical for our individual and collective uh, healing. And so just to give you a little roadmap of where we're gonna go tonight, I'm gonna do a little brief um, history around the, the mental health um, field, the mental health institution and treatment, because we're talking about healing. And I think oftentimes when we think of healing, we think that healing is accessible and safe and available for everyone. And we've talked frequently, you know, you've heard, the, heard it before, the stigma of mental illness and people not wanting to go to treatment. But I, I do wanna highlight some things from our history that make that even more difficult for um, black people, people of color that you may or may not be aware of. And then I wanna get very, very practical with some tools around what healing means um, and what that might look like for all of us. So I wanna start off um, by talking about something that you know you may have heard um, but I want to put it in put it in language, and I want to say I want to start by saying um, black trauma is a crisis of chronic attacks. Okay, chronic means it goes on and on and on, right? It's consistent and continuous, and crisis means there's a serious problem, and obviously attack means that there is a formidable opponent. So when we think about black trauma, what it means to experience trauma as an African-American because of racism, it is a crisis of chronic attacks. And the other thing that we need to understand about black trauma is it is both a historical event and a present day reality. That's important. Black trauma is a historical event, meaning we can point to racism and slavery and black codes and Jim Crow and voter suppression, all of that stuff is traumatic and it was in the past. We're like, oh, come on, it was in the past, but it is also a present reality. That's what makes black trauma a crisis. That's what makes it, makes it a crisis. So what are the things? These are common things that you may hear, some you may not hear. So there's obviously, especially now, you're seeing it resurface, the distrust of police, and government and in general, people in authority, we, we're dealing with police brutality. All of these things I'm mentioning impact or are related to black trauma. Then there is vicarious trauma. And so what vicarious trauma means is you may not be the individual that was personally attacked or experienced the direct racism or police brutality, but just constantly watching videos of the dehumanization of black people and the murder of black bodies is something we call vicarious trauma. So I don't experience, but I'm living it and reacting to it, right, as if I had. And then there is the divisive and racist political rhetoric that we hear in the news from government officials or all the things that we're exposed to 
on social media. You hear people say, don't read the comments, but we often read the comments. And I have to tell you, the comments can be heart-wrenching. I mean, I go from anger to sadness to hilarity at the ignorance to I wish I hadn't started down this rabbit hole. So, but all of these things add to the trauma. So then we have things like inequality, fear and anxiety often is produced. Anger and rage and aggression can be some of the symptoms of black trauma. Uh, always feeling like a target, always feeling under the microscope. And the interesting thing is that oftentimes black people vacillate from feeling completely invisible and unseen to hyper-seen. That's crazy, right? Um, powerlessness, feeling powerless to control, to end, to stop um, all of the things that are happening. Um, and then oftentimes low self-esteem because of all the lies that we're told about ourselves um, and just the way people talk about blackness and black people. Um, it is hard sometimes to hold on to your self-esteem and um, and remember your inherent dignity and worth when, you're, when your character, when your personhood is constantly under attack just because of the race of your skin. And then we can have shame and guilt, confusion, over-functioning and over-performing, you know, wanting to somehow dispel the myths and all the lies about blackness by feeling like we've got to work 10 times harder and prove, right, what that we're good, that we have worth. I'm constantly feeling under the microscope, walking on eggshells, eggshells rather, working hard to make other people comfortable with us. Code switching, you know, code switching constantly. Uh, victim blaming, the idea that we can be victimized yet at the same time blamed for being victims. Somehow we deserved it. Somehow whatever um, crime was committed it warranted the death sentence to have a, a false $20 bill would warrant your life being taken. Um, and then black trauma is from the, the effort to assimilate. So we have victim blaming, code switching, assimilating, constantly explaining, 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 and all of that is exhausting. And I said all of that because I'm tired even after just reading the list and I know I left stuff off. It may be tiring to just hear the list, but it's exhausting. You'll hear or see black people on social media say, I'm just tired, I'm tired. T-I read, I'm tired. And all of these things can culminate into people having symptomatology that looks like PTSD, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, another name for it often is race-based stress syndrome, okay? And so I, I do have to start kind of to ground us theologically. I, I really think this is important, but I want to say this. Um, the struggle of racism and white supremacy is spiritual warfare that shows up in the natural. The struggle of racism and white supremacy is spiritual warfare that shows up in the natural, okay? So we know in Ephesians 6, 12, that it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against rulers and against forces and authorities and cosmic powers over darkness, 
against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So the first thing I want to say about racism and white supremacy is that it is demonic. It is demonic. The second thing I want to say about racism and white supremacy is that it, is, it represents an imprisoned and false mindset. An imprisoned and false mindset. And what do we call that? Because I was with you all not too long ago. That is a stronghold. Okay, so we, though we walk in the flesh, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, we do not wage war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but divinely empowered for pulling down strongholds. So part of what racism is, is an imprisoned mindset, a mind that has believed lies. Number three, racism or white supremacy is a tool or scheme of the enemy. So Ephesians 6, 11 tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devils or the plans of the devils. Why do we have to do that? Because the devil is also described as a thief. And what is his agenda as a thief? To come and steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said that I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So white supremacy and racism is a scheme or a tool of the enemy because his agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy. Fourth, white supremacy and racism, we're dealing with it because in many ways we are wrestling with obedient children of the devil. Yes obedient now i'm talking about natural showing up in the natural obedient children of the devil where do i get this from john 8 44 says you belong to your father the devil you want to carry out your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth there is no truth in him when he speaks it says his native language is a lie for he is a liar and the father of lies. So sometimes we're dealing with people who are under the influence of their father, the devil, and they wanna please him. The other thing we need to understand about racism and white supremacy, this is the last one, is that it is a type of sinful master. Racism and white supremacy is a type of sinful master. And I'm getting this from Genesis 4, 7. So remember, the story of Cain and Abel, and when there was the issue with Cain's sacrifice, the Bible says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. When we're dealing with racism and white supremacy, we are often dealing with people who may or may not be believers, but we know that they are being controlled, controlled by sin. If racism and white supremacy is a type of sin, people should be resisting it, but instead of resisting it, sin is crouching at the door to control. And so for many people, they've been under the control, under the influence of sin, when really God, the power of Jesus Christ, has called us to subdue it and be its master. But white supremacy and racism has been the master of others. 
So if I take all of those scriptures and all of those points about what racism and white supremacy is, this is kind of my statement of how all of that leads to black trauma. And I want to read it to you. Black people have been injured by a spiritual fight that is manifested in the natural. Some people, due to having their mind imprisoned with lives and untruths called strongholds, set up by the enemy whose main agenda is to rob God of glory and steal, kill, and destroy. The devil has children that he influences through his lies, and they desire to carry out the devil's will. For those who are not the children of the devil, who have been saved by faith in Christ alone, we too can be controlled by sin by our refusal to do what is right. Instead of mastering sin, many have allowed the sin of partiality in the form of white supremacy and racism to control them instead of them controlling it by the power of Jesus Christ. The result is the refusal to see black people as created in the image of God having equal worth. The belief that white supremacy or whiteness rather is superior has led to violence, dehumanization, inequality, and suffering for black people for centuries. This is how and why black people have been traumatized by racism and white supremacy. It is not political. It is theological. It is spiritual. But it has natural, political, sociological implications. But if we miss the spiritual component, one, we will not fight correctly. And two, we will not understand what we're really contending with. So, yes, Black people have been traumatized. But why? Where does it come from? Who's the real enemy? But thanks be to God, Jesus says this in Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me, okay, healing, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Psalm 147.3 says, he, speaking of Jesus, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He himself, the Bible tells us, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And that interests me so much as a healer that my wounds, both spiritual and natural, get healed by the wounding of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to say, especially to my Black brothers and sisters who are watching right now, is this doesn't minimize the trauma. It doesn't invite more trauma. But I just want to encourage you by saying all pain has purpose and no wound is wasted. And even our own healing, our own deliverance came through the wounding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, uh, third John 1, 2 says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects, 
you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Right here, the Bible is telling us that God cares about our mental health. God cares about our whole being. He's saying, I pray that in all respects, mind, body, spirit, in all ways that you prosper and be in good health. And to prosper means to flourish physically, grow strong and healthy, to be successful in every respect. But the truth of the matter is because of racism and white supremacy, we all aren't healthy. We all aren't okay. But God desires that we would be. So what is mental health? If we're talking about brokenness, we need to understand what mental health is. If we're talking about trauma, we need to understand what mental health is. So just briefly, mental health is the psychological, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being, right? It's the holistic health. So to be mentally healthy is inviting total health. So to be healthy in any area and not healthy in another area is not really full mental health, okay? Mental health of individuals impacts the overall community health. So, you know, we have little adages like you're only as strong as the weakest link. But the reality is the, ch the church, our, our communities and our neighborhoods, the world is only as healthy as all of its members are healthy. And when people are not healthy in body, mind and spirit, it impacts the community health. Quality of life is impacted by strains in mental health. Mental illness causes disturbances in daily life functions. So here's the thing. All of us are sad and depressed or anxious sometimes. Sometimes we're afraid. But what qualifies as something that is a mental illness from you know, normal um, disruptions in daily life is when it causes you to not be able to function normally in your daily life routines. All right? And what determines mental wellness is very complex. And... If we were to assume that racial trauma or black trauma started when we saw the murder of George Floyd, we have no idea. You have no idea. But we're, remember, it is chronic, persistent attacks on blacks. All right? So um, a crisis is historical, it's systemic, and it's persistent and it's present. And how we manage, how we fare as individuals has a lot to do with the quality of our mental health. And we know, I'm not gonna run down the statistics, but racism has impacted people socioeconomically. So there is a wealth gap, there's a poverty gap of the 46 million African-Americans that are in the United States, 27% are below the poverty line. Okay, more than 50% don't have access to mental health care who need it. There are health and biological factors for several reasons. African-Americans, and we see this with COVID-19, um, there are health disparities. We are more at risk to die from almost every disease like heart disease and diabetes and HIV and AIDS and homicides um, than any other um, ethnic group. Then we have issues around our community and neighborhood safety. Um, many people live in a food desert where they can't eat healthy food, which also impacts one's mental health. Then we have family history and family trauma and life experiences. 
all of that though intersects with racism. Socioeconomic, health and biological factors, education, community, neighborhood safety, family history, and life experiences are all impacted by racism. All of that stuff has added to the trauma Black people face. So if you think that Black people started struggling emotionally or getting sad or getting angry because of the recent hashtags, you don't understand the well of pain that Black people have been living with. And let me just say this, because I know Black people are not a monolith, and I, as one individual Black woman, cannot speak for all Black people. But let me just say that there is a, a large majority of people who would believe what I'm saying is what they're feeling and experiences. And we've got outliers for every group and community. But if I could just say it plainly, Black people have been suffering, and racism has been a big part of it. Amen. And that is a sin, and it is a sin. I want to drive that home, it is a sin. So what is racism? It's the beliefs and attitudes, um, institutional and systemic approaches that degrade and belittle groups based on skin color, all right? I love this by Glass. He says, racism is defined as power plus prejudice. Power plus prejudice. So power is key. Without power, to deny or create obstacles, then it is not racism to the degree that he's defining it, all right? It's, and then that is combined with color uh, prejudice. It is an unquestioned, this is color prejudice, an unquestioned emotional attachment to a lie about someone who is different in appearance. Some people just have this unquestioned emotional attachment to viewing black people a certain way, even if it's a lie, even if you can statistically prove why what you're believing about the black community is false. The color prejudice, I am attached to the belief about black people despite alternative evidence. All right. And we know, and I, I believe one of your other speakers have said it, so I'm not gonna belabor the point. We know that race in of itself is fictional. Um, we, America is a fully racialized society. We bought into this idea that we can categorize people based on racial constructs where whiteness is seen as superior, but race is no neither biological or genetic, but it was created to subjugate and elevate, all right? So what are some barriers to the mental health? Because we're talking about healing. And so people just say, well, like people just need to get, get help. But, but it's not so easy for even black people to heal in the society we live in, right? Here's something you may not know. The research shows that most people fare better in counseling with people who are like them, especially racial minorities do better with counselors who are of their same um, race. But how are black people supposed to get healed when 86% of the psychologists are white and only 2% of the psychologists and psychiatrists in the world are black? In the world, in the United States rather, 2%. One of the other reasons it's very hard to get treatment for our mental health is there is a lack of culturally competent providers. So, you know, similar to Black History Month, where it's like a blip on the educational uh, syllabus, 
you know, our graduate school training doesn't, some programs are different, but it does very little work on competence and counseling people from the African-American community. Um, compared with whites, with the same exact symptoms, African-Americans, especially black men, are more frequently diagnosed with schizophrenia and less frequently diagnosed with mood disorders, even though many mood disorders, right, like bipolar, often have psychotic features, but that doesn't meet really the diagnosable criteria for schizophrenia. But more African-American men get slapped with the label of schizophrenia, which changes their access and appropriateness to treatment. Um, people often are concerned about stigma and medications and improper diagnosis not receiving appropriate information about services. And many black people don't get mental health care because they've experienced dehumanizing services. And most mental health services that are available to black men, when black men can actually get the counseling they need, don't exist except for prison. So if a black man wants to get free, appropriate treatment for his mental health, he's gotta go to jail? What message does that send? And then there is the historic and current distrust of the healthcare system. And so I'm going somewhere. I'm, we're gonna get to the practical stuff, but I wanna lay a foundation. So who do we blame? The world we live in blames the victim constantly. The, the, the world blames the individual. It never wants to look at the systems. It never wants to look at how systemic racism has impacted the lives of people for years. And that get over it, that was a long time ago. Y'all are just playing the race card. All of that re-victimizes black people. And so the question we should be asking, there are two I'm gonna pose. What is the history of systemic racism and systems of oppression? We've gotta be able to see the history. And then two, what I'm gonna talk about briefly is what is the history of racism in the mental health field? And how is it that black people are supposed to heal from the trauma of racism when the mental health field has a history of racism? So this is this section called the historical context of racism and mental health. And so the label, and if you wanna look it up on your own, we can call this pseudoscience or better yet, racist science. So in the United States, there was something called scientific racism, or we call it now scientific racism. Back then it was just called, ooh, great science. It was used to justify slavery and appease the moral opposition to the Atlantic slave trade. And so it's kind of like people knew that what they were doing was wrong, but if you can scientifically come up with an explanation to dehumanize one group over another, to make one group less valuable than another, it helps ease the conscience, so they say. And black men primarily were described as primitive psychologically, that they were not mentally organized. And therefore that made black men and people uniquely fit for bondage. This is the science that justified the Atlantic slave trade. All right, so what people think about black people now just didn't pop out of anywhere. So some of you may have heard of Benjamin Rush. He was considered the father of American psychiatry. 
and until 2015, his literal face was still on the seal and logo of the American Psychiatric Association. He was Dean of the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School, and he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, but Benjamin Rush, he had this great scientific idea called Nigritude, N-E-G-R-I-T-U-D-E, Nigritude. Benjamin Rush described African-Americans, who he called then Negroes, as suffering from Nigritude. And what is this disorder that he gave Black people? He said, this was a disorder thought to be a mild form of leprosy. And the only cure for Nigritude was to become white. Strangely, he became one of the leading mental health reformers and co-founded one of the anti-slavery societies in America. And he is quoted as saying, Africans became insane soon after they entered the toils of perpetual slavery in the West Indies. But then moving on from Benjamin Rush, we have Dr. Samuel Cartwright. And so Dr. Samuel Cartwright in 1851, he's this esteemed American physician. And he came up with a disorder called draptomania, D-R-A-P-E-T-O-M-A-N-I-A, draptomania. And he said this was, however, a treatable mental illness, but it caused Black people or Black slaves to free, to flee captivity. So if a Black slave tried to run for freedom, gee, what an interesting idea, they were diagnosed with draptomania, okay? And I don't know if any of you have seen some of the um, like Google images of the black man and on his back, you can see the whips, the whip marks. Um, um, Dr. Samuel Cartwright believed that black people were put on earth to be slaves and to serve. And that was ingrained in their nature and that God created black people to be submissive knee benders. He used the Bible to support his positions. And he said slaves needed to be kept subservient and treated like children to be cured of their tendency to want to be free. He said this disorder was the consequence of white slave masters who opposed the will of God and made themselves too familiar with the slave and treated them as equals. Warning signs, he said, of slaves having this draptomania mental disorder were being sulky and dissatisfied without cause. And he discovered a treatment for draptomania, which was whipping the devil out of them and removal of the big toes to make running away physically impossible. But Dr. Cartwright didn't stop there. In 1851, he came up with another clever mental diagnosis. It was called Dysethesia Ethiopica, D-Y-S-A-E-T-H-E-S-I-A, capital A-E-T-H-I-O-P-I-C-A. If you look up Dr. Cartwright in racism, it'll pop up. <laughs> um, but he described this disorder as an alleged mental illness 
that was shown through slaves who were lazy and rascally and showed disrespect for their master. Slaves were diagnosed with this mental illness when they had no proper work ethic. It affected their mind and body and he noticed that there were visible lesions. And so some writers have concluded in Physicians Today, is it possible that slaves who had been beaten, malnourished, not receiving medical care, developed skin conditions that then got infected and then reduced their energy so they could not work at the same rate, but instead of making the connection to their inhumanity, to their physical illness, he came up with a mental illness and said, this is what makes slaves lazy. Um, he said a common psychiatric position was that freed slaves, those that got free, suffered more mental illness than enslaved people. He said that those who had never been in slavery are the most affected by this mental illness that leads to laziness. And I saw this meme one day and it made me think of Dr. Cartwright. It said, black people were never called lazy until they stopped working for free. <laughs> the US Census made the same claims as a political weapon against abolitionists. Um, and so one of the things that is so important in terms of the development of the mental health institution is that African-Americans were constantly called unfit, psychologically unfit for freedom, the trauma. As late as 1914, draptomania and this other diagnosis was still listed in the practical medical dictionary. So, so when people say, oh, that was years ago, all of this lays the groundwork for the mentality of how African-Americans are seen, even mentally, which often denies them healthy mental health treatment. What was the treatment for this disorder? Wash the body, put oil on the body, press oil into the sores, and then whip them with a leather belt, and then give them hard work in the field with an occasional cool drink, to cure them of this mental illness. This is what black people have been suffering. But it doesn't stop there. So we think, oh, slavery ended, didn't things get better? No. So at the end of slavery, that begins a racist criminal justice system. And so when the black codes were created, that led to unprecedented amounts of imprisonment for black men and women and children who um, returned to slavery to slave-like conditions rather through forced labor. So the Black codes, though slavery was abolished, still put Black people through criminalization. That's where the movie 13th Amendment and different things like that comes, comes from. Um, and all of this led all the way into the 20, 20th century. Scientific racism, which we still experience in many ways today, was motivated by control and profit and healthcare professionals propagated the idea that blacks were less human and less valuable to, than whites, which justified exploitation, experimentation, right? All throughout um, the lives of black people in history. And so now we're moving up because now we see people protesting and resisting. So how is mental health being framed for black people even as we're coming into the civil rights era? And so defining mental illness by black resistance 
followed into the civil rights era. Let me say that again. Defining mental illness by black resistance followed into the civil rights area. Therefore, if you resisted oppression, if you resisted racism, if you resisted white supremacy, you were diagnosed as having some kind of mental illness. And the interesting thing is in the 1920s through the 1950s, schizophrenia was actually seen as a, a very mild disorder for guess who? White, docile, middle-class women. They all had schizophrenia. That's what they were uh, diagnosed with. And so we see some sexism in that too, but I'm going to talk about blackness today. I'm going to stay on track because I can go there too. <laughs> but schizophrenia during that time was called the middle-class housewife disorder. Woo. Right? But then in the, in the 1960s, assumptions about race and gender and temperament of schizophrenia change. So it's no longer this middle-class white housewife disorder. Um, the American um, public and scientific community, check this out, y'all, began to describe a violent, uh, um, uh, schizophrenia be began to be described as a violently social disease. Middle-class white suburban housewife in the 60s now, what's going on in the 60s? Now it's this violent disease. So articles and research started describing schizophrenia as a disorder manifesting as rage, volatility, and aggression, and was considered now not white women, but the main affliction of the Negro man. Now, do y'all remember I just showed y'all the statistic that even today, black men are more diagnosed with schizophrenia when they probably have mood disorders than any other group. Well, in the 60s, black men were being called schizophrenic because of their protest, not necessarily a dysfunction of the mind. And so this new diagnosis was to curb urban violence. And it was considered a brain dysfunction. So they started saying, we need to do brain surgery on all these black men. And neuroscientists were trying to prevent outbreaks of violence. And they said, we need to do this to black men to control the urban community. So in 1968, an article in the esteemed journal, Archives of General Psychiatry, said schizophrenia is now called protest psychosis. Protest psychosis, in which Black men develop hostile, aggressive feelings and delusional anti-whiteness after they would listen or align themselves with activist group like the Black uh, Power, Black Panther, or the Nation of Islam, the Nation of Islam. So treatment was required to protect the Black man's sanity. This is a quote. They need treatment to protect their sanity as well as maintain social order. So during this time, not so long ago, the Black psyche, the Black mind, the mental health of Black people was increasingly portrayed as unwell, immoral, inherently criminal. The justify, this then began to justify police brutality during all the civil rights movements. So anybody that was protesting, anybody that was resisting, 
had this protest psychosis, this mental disorder. And so all of this police brutality increased. So during the Jim Crow laws and mass incarcerations and mass, um, and mass, and, and, and well, they could be called incarcerations in psychiatric hospitals. During this time, black men either went to jail, to the grave or to the mental health hospital because they resisted. I don't know if any of you all know anything about psychotropic medication, but there was um, racism in anti-psychotropic medication advertisement in the 1960s and 70s. Um, advertisement for an anti-psychotic medication called Haldol, H-A-L-D-O-L, it treats psychosis. It was advertised as depicting an angry black man with his fist clenched. And he had an urban, like, like New York looking setting behind him. All right. And on the, so this, imagine this black man looking like this with the city behind him. And at the top of the advertisement, it had a question, assaultive and belligerent. And here's the advertisement for the, uh, for the thing. It says, cooperation often begins with Haldol, a first choice for starting therapy. That's the history. Here we are today. All of that is the cumulative trauma. That's, I'm, I'm trying to show y'all the history to lay the groundwork. Because if you think healing from trauma is going somewhere and burning a candle and listening to some jazz, you don't, you don't understand the depth of it. You don't understand the depth of it. I need to show the history, even in the mental health field. We haven't even talked about the other fields. We're just talking about mental health field, how black psychosis was discussed, how black mental health was defamed. So how does it manifest now? So you all have heard this. We've got macroaggressions, which are the overt, overt forms of racism. We have microaggressions, which are the subtle, intentional, or unintentional slights to denigrate and degrade people of color. And back in the day, microaggressions used to be the, 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 the order of the day, but now it has shifted to more overt forms of anti-blackness and racism, macro-racism. So as I said, racial trauma is the cumulative effects of frequent experiences of racism. And so there have been so many studies that have just showed the long-term detrimental impact of racism on mental health. Um, there's been some studies on what we call intergenerational trauma. So being exposed to the history of racism, right? The transmission of historical context across generations, parents and grandparents and uncles, just listening to the stories of what people suffered and endured is its own portion of the cumulative trauma. Um, there's been some research even in the neurobiological community where they've been looking at biological and genetic transmission of racism, where there's this thought that racism um, and the trauma is held in the body and in the DNA and passed on generationally, that we're kind of born with this trauma. So they've been doing some good work on that. Um, and then early racial socialization from a very young age, children are just hyper aware that they're seen different and they're valued differently in the world. And if anyone is a parent, 
there's a part of you that um, wants to protect your child from that reality, but a, a, a larger part of you that knows you got to tell them the truth because they got to live in these streets. But all of this is the cumulative effect. And one of the things that we see, um, especially in the psychological field, is that the symptoms that Black people are suffering with are very much related to what we have long heard of, which is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and what we're calling it now is race-based traumatic stress or race-based stress syndrome. And so what does that look like? Sometimes there are, there are symptoms are fear, aggression, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, shame, hypervigilance, uh, just a general pessimist, pessimistic attitude. You can have nightmares, intrusive and distressing thoughts, difficulty concentrating, avoidance of the feared or distressing stimulus, um, substance abuse, flashbacks, relational dysfunction, and self-harming behaviors. But I, but I would be remiss if we talked about healing from racial trauma and we only talked about this as if Black people were the only ones who in some ways are suffering or have disorders or mental health struggles. Because um, I just wanna say this, black people aren't the only people in need of healing. Um, I wanna submit to you today, and maybe you've never heard of this before, but I wanna suggest that white people need healing too, just in a different way. Um, have you ever considered, I wanna challenge you, have you ever considered what psychological impact white supremacy has had on white individuals? If black people suffer from the trauma of white supremacy, then I submit white people suffer from the delusion of white supremacy. Just think about, think about what it does to your mind to, to be born into a world that shapes your thinking around you being better than everybody else. Um, there was uh, a quote from the Western Journal of Medicine and it said, racism is pathological. Why? Because to scapegoat an entire group of people and seek to eliminate them, to resolve his or her internal conflicts meets criteria for a delusional disorder, which is a major psychiatric illness. Um, one clinical psychiatrist wrote, talking about patients he's treated, their strong racist feelings, which were tied to fixed belief systems impervious to reality checks, were symptoms of serious mental dysfunction. When these patients became more aware of their own personal problems, they grew less paranoid and less prejudiced. Hmm. I don't know if you all remember, but in the 80s, there was this big thing about crack babies. Babies who were born addicted to crack because their parents were crack addicts and we would 
read the articles and see the television shows of these black children or white children who had neurological problems and problems eating and just were thought to have so many delays because not of any choice of their own, but because of what their parents did, they were born addicted to crack. So to use the analogy, in many ways, I feel like that is the experience of many white people. They're like racist crack babies. White people are born, some of them, addicted to the drug of white supremacy that their parents use to soothe their own fractured egos and distorted sense of self. The sin of white supremacy is the most deadly yet legalized drug in America. Let me say that again. The sin of white supremacy is the most deadly yet legalized drug in America. People are born with it, born with it in their homes, born with it in, their, in the media, born with it from the voices and opinions of their parents. They're born with it in um, their school and educational system. It's like coming into a world that says you're better. And do you not think that that does not destroy the soul, that God created all people equal. He created all people in the image of God. And somehow you show up on the planet thinking that you surpass another person that God created. Something gotta be wrong. Something gotta be wrong. And we don't have a whole lot of time for it now, but there's even been some neurological studies that are looking at how racism and extremism, rather, of racism um, may be a brain dysfunction. Um, the hippocampus, um, the amygdala, rather, the amygdala, which is our fight and flight and fear response, you know, kind of just happens naturally. You have, a, and all of us have implicit biases of one thing or another, but the, the, the amygdala, which is supposed to respond to fear, but if it is irrational fear, the executive function, the prefrontal cortex of the brain is supposed to regulate the amygdala because it is able to make rational, reasonable choices. And what they have found in some of the brain scans of extremists, even religious extremism, is that there is some dysfunction in the executive functioning of the prefrontal cortex. But you can look up all of those. I think Northwestern University did a fantastic study about that. But I just thought it would be important that as we're talking about healing from racial trauma, that we don't neglect the fact that all of us need some healing in one way or the other. So some of us need healing from low self-esteem and some of us need healing from grandiosity delusions of grandiosity. Some of us need, need, need healing from um, not feeling like yourself has any value or worth. And some of us need healing from passed down lessons of self-righteousness. Some of us need healing from thinking we are the threat. And some of us need healing from having an irrational fear of another human being just because of their race. And some of us need healing because we've seen ourselves too low, though we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And some of us need healing from the sin of pride because you have no sober view of the self based on your skin color. But all of us need healing. Um, so what are black people facing? Something called racial battle fatigue. 
And so black people are fighting a daily battle, experiencing racial slights and insults and stereotypes and discrimination. It's exhausting. And the reality is all people have to deal with what we would call regular adulting, right? Folks got to pay, this is all races, right? We got to pay bills. We got to go to school. We have to work. We got to work and develop relationships and make ourselves vulnerable and, and build intimacy. But for Black people, we are dealing with the additional stress. So we're adulting, but then we got another stress of being questioned and rejected and belittled and distrusted and attacked and stereotyped and followed and murdered just because we Black. Trauma. Stress in the Black life, in the heart, in the mind, is created through this chronic, hostile environment. We're always on guard trying to respond or manage every attack and insult. We're tired. Black folks are tired of talking about racism, but we know we got to talk about it. Being asked to teach our white siblings everything about racism. Folks have figured out how to put people on the moon, but we don't know how to repent for racism. We don't know how to love our neighbor. We're tired of being a voice for an entire race of people on their job, in the school, on social media. And so we have all of these things, anxiety, worry, headaches, increased heart rate, blood pressure issues, avoidance, you know, inappropriate self-soothing. So I want to transition now and go into um, the, the coping mechanisms and the healing things that we can do. And I want to start off by talking about what not to do or what sometimes people do that's just not helpful, coping with trying to manage racism. So number one thing I want to not recommend is cultural abandonment and majority group assimilation. And so Sometimes racism is so tiring and exhausting. It's like, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans. If you can't beat them, join them. That does not heal racial trauma. That is a quick fix or a solution to abandon who you are and who and where you come from. And that doesn't do anything but continue to cut at the soul. Um, drugs and alcohol, you know. Um, one of the things I often say is if all you want to do is feel better, if all your goal is, is just feeling better, then here's the solution. You get some drugs, you get some alcohol, you go on a beautiful beach somewhere, get butt naked and high and have sex and you'll feel better. You'll feel better. But the goal is not about feeling better, it is about doing better. And nobody grows up and says, I wanna be a drug dealer, I wanna be a drug addict, I wanna be an alcoholic. People do these things because they work short term. And so drugs and alcohol is never an appropriate solution under any circumstances to cope with life distress. Um, acceptance of tokenism, just being that one. And sometimes that's hard because you know, black people are always at a disadvantage that to be accepted or to be chosen, you know, by the by the majority culture, if you're not careful, you can forget you come from a community of people. You can forget that um, sometimes you're used to fill in a statistic um, 
and to play the role of the token, I just want to say, and I'm talking to black folks on, on this for sure, is just usually not healthy because you give up so much of your own kind of intrinsic morality um, and also community. Um, it is a very, it is a less African, more European, Western idea of individuality. And so, and as a Christian, as a Christian, we're called to be communal, regardless of what color we are. Um, also, another negative coping mechanism is acceptance of ne negative stereotypes. So aligning with the oppressor, the Stockholm syndrome, um, pretending to not be affected by racism, using anger as a constant buffer, uh, violence and self-harming behaviors, or over-spiritualizing your pain. So cultural abandonment and assimilation, drugs and alcohol, acceptance of tokenism, acceptance of negative stereotypes about yourself and black people, aligning with the oppressor, pretending to not be affected by racism, using anger as a constant buffer, because anger is legitimate, but we, we can't stay stuck there. Um, and violence, self-harming behaviors and over-spiritualizing it, meaning, using the trauma of racism to say, well, if God allowed it, he's gonna work everything out for my good. And all of those things are true, but we often use that to sit down and not fight against injustice. So when you over-spiritualize sin, you don't confront sin. You don't seek to correct sin. Um, and so we don't, want, and we don't want to use the scripture in a way that God is not calling us to use the scripture. All right, so Jeremiah 30, 17 says, for I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. Um, Pastor Rice, I don't even know where I am with time, so jump in if I need to speed up. Just let me know where I am. You got about 20 minutes left. Perfect, okay, good, I can do that. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the things I wanna start off with is this idea of reframing healing, okay? And so, this presentation, this topic tonight is about healing from racial trauma. So I'm gonna say something kind of controversial, but I'm going to explain it. Um, but here's something I want you to think about with this idea of healing racial trauma. I wanna encourage all of us, African-Americans particularly, to increase our willingness to have the trauma. Like, what? So this is really what I'm talking about, acceptance. What you don't acknowledge can never be healed. So increasing your willingness to have the trauma is to admit, accept that if you are black in this country, you've likely experienced some kind of racial trauma. All right, if you don't acknowledge it, you can't heal it. But I also want us to consider increasing our willingness to experience the stress of racism, evil, and hatred. What do I mean by that? If you all are trying to imagine a life without any racial stress, that is fantastical. It will dilute, you're, you're diluting yourself and it is a form of creating false peace. Trying to imagine a world where there is no racial stress, that in of itself is fantastical. You are deluding yourself and trying to create false peace. You will only be disappointed. Um, the scripture says, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. 
in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So we don't need false peace. The Bible tells us that we have peace in Christ. And so the reality is, even if it's something we don't want, if, we're, if God is allowing it, if we're dealing with it, if we're wrestling with it, any cross you are not willing to carry will crush you. If you are not willing to, to wake up and understand you live in a broken, fallen world because of sin, and in one way or another, sin is going to always create stress for all of us as the people of God, you will be crushed by it. It is something we have to accept as a part of the life in the fallen world. That doesn't mean we don't fight against it. It doesn't mean we don't try to change policy. It doesn't mean we don't call out sin, but there is a certain amount of stress we are going to have to accept. And I believe most times black people do accept it. I'm highlighting it. I'm highlighting it because the more awake and aware we are of it, not trying to bury our head in the sand, not trying to self-soothe inappropriately or diminish the pain, the more we can face it head on, use our spiritual resources, the natural resources the Lord has also offered us, and we can do something productive and profitable for the glory of God. All right, so here's the thing. Healing from trauma of racism cannot be, listen, 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 Healing from the trauma of racism cannot be predicated on racism ending or you will never be well. If your healing is tied to racism ending, you will never be well. So what are we talking about? Is it possible to actually heal in the middle of white supremacy and racism? Here's the question. How then does one heal from a pain and an assault that does not stop? The question is, even is healing the right word? Just imagine when you get a scab, you, get a, you scratch yourself, it bleeds, you treat it, it starts to scab. I used to pick it. Some of us may have picked it. It itched. My mom used to say, stop picking at the scab or it will never heal. But when we are black and we live in America, racism is always picking at the scab. So is it possible to heal from a pain and an assault that never stops? So maybe the question is, and I'm not changing the, the title of tonight, but is healing even the right word? Are we talking coping? Are we talking living with? Are we talking thriving? Or is our healing irrespective of the conditions? Um, one of the things that's so interesting is when um, I've had clients that were in war or had some other kind of trauma, they would come to my office and they would have PTSD. One of the greatest things I had in my clinical arsenal was that I could look at a soldier and I could say soldier. If you just hang on, if you just follow this treatment protocol, things will get better because you are no longer in Iraq. You are no longer in Afghanistan. You don't have to worry about bombs going off. You don't have to worry about grenades. You don't have to worry about um, explosives and seeing your fellow, um, your fellow brothers and sisters' bodies um, torn apart. One of the greatest things I had at my disposal as a clinician is that they were healing apart from the trauma. 
but how do black people heal in a country that continues to re-traumatize them? So what I wanna suggest is creating another way of looking at it, all right? So here, what if we thought about it like this? We need to really heal or thrive create a God honoring plan. Now, you know, I started with God honoring because we can come up with a plan that ain't God honoring. So glory to Jesus, a God honoring plan. Because <laughs> some of y'all might have some non-God honoring plans. I know I have had to rewrite some of my non-God honoring plans and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to really be a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian. Creating a God honoring plan to live as healthy, as sane, as stable, as productive, and as righteously as we can, despite trauma persisting. We're talking about building up psychological, communal, and spiritual resiliency so that we are not paralyzed or slaughtered by continuous vicarious trauma. We don't want to be slaughtered by continuous vicarious trauma. So we need a plan. One of the other things we need to reframe, not only the healing, but part of it is reframe the wound. And this goes back to what I was saying before. And even though we have personal attacks and insults and all those kind of things we see, black and white and people, it is really key, especially for the people of God, to reframe the wound as a product of sin that has nothing to do with me. And I know that that's hard to depersonalize the attack, but we have to see it and call it what it is. Racism, white supremacy is anti-God. It is against the Lord, against the nature and character of God. And when a person sins against God, even if I am on the end of their sin, it has nothing to do with me. That has helped me so much to accept and see it as a sin. Healing has to be reframed eschatologically. So what do I mean by that? We need to think about healing in the end times. So it's this now and not yet reality that we need to think about in terms of healing. So an analogy that, I have some analogies that work for me. I wanna encourage you as one of kind of the healing things that we're talking about tonight is to come up with your own analogy. So I think about uh, healing in a couple ways. One, um, when it comes to racism and white supremacy, I look at it like an inoperable cancer. It's there and we can treat it, but we can't take it out. We can treat the parts of the body that have been damaged as a result of the cancer of racism and white supremacy. We can extend the life. We can do our best to function as healthy as possible, but the total healing may not happen on this side of heaven, but total healing is coming total healing is coming. I've lost several people to cancer and have family members now struggling with cancer. And uh, we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray for God to heal here on this side of heaven. But I, I love how the, the heart of the believer has faith in God to say, God is either going to heal here or he's going to heal there. 
but healing is coming. And that's the good news. One day this is going to be over. And then I also look at um, racism and white supremacy the way I look at sanctification. So the three parts of sanctification is justification. So that means we are freed from the penalty of sin. So how do I look at that in terms of processing my racial trauma? So one of the things I say in terms of justified is that my identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. He tells me who I am and I am not what white supremacy says I am. That's one of the ways that I heal from racial trauma is because I disavow, I separate myself from the lie that's even being told about me and I root my name and root my character and root my personhood in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm justified. Then I look at it in terms of progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification means we are freed from the power of sin. So now we have the Holy Spirit in us that causes us to wrestle against our flesh. All right. So what does that mean for us in terms of racism? We don't have to be overpowered by racism and the sin of white supremacy and hatred. Will it attack us? Will we take some hits? Right. But we don't have to be utterly destroyed. We have spiritual weapons. We have natural weapons that the Lord has given us to fight against. I don't have to just sit back and lay, you know, just powerless as a victim to these evils. I'm freed from it overpowering me. I am not a slave to white supremacy. I am not a slave to racism. And then lastly, glorification, the last stage of sanctification. We will one day fully be freed from the presence of sin. And one day we all will be freed from racism and white supremacy. Amen. One day we will have total freedom but it may not happen here. So our healing is not tied to racism ending. Our healing transcends circumstances. So we need to have a renewed mind. We need to have spiritual sight and we need to make wise choices. And I wanna lift up Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians 5, 11 through 17. And I kind of use this to frame how I think about racism and things like that. Um, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but instead, the Bible tells us, expose them. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that is illuminated becomes a light itself. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So one of the things I want to encourage you to do, you don't have to use this scripture, you can pick your own, but I do want you all to do something that I call reframe healing, by creating your own elevator pitch. And so that's almost like if you could in 30 seconds or less, describe how you as a Christian are responding to racism and white supremacy. Like what is your mantra? What is your, your word? What is your elevator pitch? So here's mine. I, Sarita Lyons, will no longer believe the lies that the devil tells through the lips of white supremacy. Instead, I will live in the truth 
of what God has declared about me and treat myself and others as co-image bearers. I will expose evil and fight for justice as the Bible commands. I will love my neighbor as myself. I will forgive and I will be open to biblical reconciliation. I will spread the gospel and tell the world about Jesus, the true deliverer. And I will wait with great expectation for his righteous judgment and vindication. So that's my elevator pitch. That's my statement of who am I gonna be? How am I gonna think? How am I gonna function in this world? Because it, it, white supremacy cannot have my mind. It will not control me. It cannot control you. And so as a believer, what's your elevator pitch? How are you framing all of this? All right, so here are some practical tips for coping with racism and we're ending with this. Number one, I wanna encourage you all to tend to your emotions, attend to your emotions. So we have to acknowledge the deep and painful emotional impact of racism. So any attempt that any of us make to control or minimize or suppress negative emotions always have a paradoxical effect. So it's like if you have a beach ball and you go in the pool and you try to push a beach ball under the water, you can do it for so long, but eventually what happens? The beach ball just bounces way up in the air. That's what happens to our emotional life when we are trying to minimize um, or when we don't attend to painful emotions. We try to press them down, suppress them. Secondly, I wanna, and we've talked about some other things, but this is just next. It's probably not secondly, but next. I want you all to engage in self-compassion. And so that it's important to understand and acknowledge that we are human. Even God knows we're human. I, one of my most comforting scriptures about being a human is when the Lord says he knows our frame and that we are dust. Mm, 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 mm. I just love the fact that God is like, listen, I know whence you come. I know I made y'all from the dirt. And so we have to have self-compassion. We are not God. We have Christ in us, but we are not Christ. And so we have limitations. We have a lot of his communable attributes, but we don't have his incommunable attributes. And so we are not God, we're limited. So we are not rocks, we are not robots, and we are not Rambo. We're not hard as a rock, we're not emotionalist as a robot, and we are not um, impervable to injury like Rambo. I'm like, I don't know if y'all are too young to have watched Rambo, and I don't know, I'm sure y'all seen Rambo, but like Rambo would like get blown up and then not die, but we're not Rambo. All right, um, we often are more compassionate to other people than we are ourselves. So I wanna encourage you, those who struggle with self-compassion, to think how would you talk to someone else? So be your own therapist. You can still go to therapy. And I can't believe I'm a therapist and I didn't write nowhere in here, go to therapy. Maybe because I just told y'all how jacked up the mental health field is. <laughs> but yes, please also go to therapy. That's very helpful. That's a plug um, for therapists. But be your own therapist too. And, 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 and therapists that are worth their salt will tell you the same thing. Um, that we have to learn how to talk to our own soul and we got to coach ourselves in the gospel. We, we got to learn how to talk to our soul, right? So one of the things I want to suggest is write a letter or record a message 
that is very compassionate, something you would say to someone else and use that as what you want to say to yourself to remind you in this racist world that you're not a rock, you're not a robot, and you're not Rambo. Um, obviously, as Christians, I just have to add it though, we want to engage in our spiritual disciplines and practices. Um, and I don't say that to minimize it. These are the robust tools. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So if they're not carnal, what are our spiritual tools? And prayer is a major spiritual tool. And I think sometimes we can get so demoralized, if I can keep it 100, that it's like, I don't even know if God is listening to me because where, where was God? Where has he been? I, you know, and don't think that Christians don't feel like that sometimes. Sometimes we like, okay, God, I've been talking to some friends and people have actually said like, I sure hope this thing is real. The vicissitudes and the hardness of life can sometimes cause you to question. And God is good and great, and he can handle our questions, our struggles with faith, but we got to keep talking to him. Even tell him you're having a crisis of faith. Um, I want to encourage us to have arsenals of scripture. We need to find scripture that is connected to the struggles we're dealing with, okay? And so we need to have the full counsel of the word of God, but we also need to sometimes, you know, get scripture. Like if you're struggling with depression, um, to, to read a scripture from numbers may not be the one you want to go to. So we want to have very specific weapons firing at certain issues of the heart and life. Uh, meditation, stillness, quietness, getting away with God, practicing Sabbath, like, we don't do that the way we should. It's grind, it's hustle, it's bustle, but we gotta learn to slow down. Some of us are dealing with so much psychosomatic pain and distress because of our emotions, and we don't hardly feel the pain because we're too loud and we're too fast and we're too busy to even feel. We got to make time to feel because there's some pain we're not in touch with. And some of us use busyness so we don't even have to feel. I want to encourage us to engage in healing too versus teaching. And so I know that part of us are called, many of us are called to teach and share truth, but make sure you're focused on healing from racism, not just teaching about racism. Even to do this um, uh, message tonight, I had to really talk to the Lord about what I'm feeling um, because sometimes the clinician, sometimes the healer, not sometimes, the healer is always in need of healing too. We gotta make time to check in with ourselves. All right, we gotta engage in what's called valued action. Engage in valued action. What is that? You have to do things that bring you joy and add meaning to your life. And see, racism can cause people to not engage in the things that are consistent with their stated values. So we say, this is what I value, this is what I care about, but the damage and the pain and the weight of racism can cause you to abandon the things that actually bring you joy and that have meaning to you, all right? And when people engage in valued action, um, research has shown it decreases stress. Um, and so you don't want to avoid, you don't want to avoid things that are in line with your values. So don't just like take off from work, 
um, incessantly. Sometimes we need to take off from work, but you know, don't just not show up for class. Don't avoid social situations. Don't avoid taking risk and challenging yourself. Um, don't avoid always engaging in environments that could potentially be hostile because those things, if those are the environments where you feel free, that's my dog barking, where you feel free and where you feel yourself, we've got to not feel like we have to give up on our values, our dreams, our goals, because we're burdened by racism. Sometimes racism makes you just feel like, what's the point of trying? We're already tired. Does it even matter? All right. Um, and one of the things you have to do with valued action because of the emotional toll of racism is practice doing the opposite of how you feel. And so anybody that's ever been to therapy or if you're a therapist yourself, you know that when people are dealing with depression, it feels like a weight is on you. And so to tell somebody, go for a walk, go jogging, you know, get around people. It's like, you don't feel it. Don't nobody feel like doing that. But you really have to do the opposite of how you feel. In fact, this is just another topic for another day, but the majority of the Christian life is doing the opposite of how we feel. But that's for free. <laughs> All right. Um, one of the major things that we have to heal from is internalized negative messages. And so what does that mean, internalized negative messages? This happens when oppressed people begin to accept and believe all the internal or negative messages that they've received from the, from the world about themselves. Ha internalizing negative messages is linked to poor self-esteem, higher levels of psychological distress, and can increase depression and anxiety, all right? And so we get all of these messages from the media, from school, from interpersonal relationships, from work, right? From social media about who we are, and if you're not careful, we can believe them. So things like around colorism and things about whether or not we can achieve and whether or not we're able to have healthy relationships. You know, the worst damage that racism has done is that we've cooperated with its lie. Like the unlearning that we have to do. So how do we do this? I want to tell you to erase and replace the tapes. All right. The only way you defeat a lie is with the truth. And so you've got to surround yourself with people that love you, value you, and will verbally affirm you. I'm not just talking about folks that say, I know they love me. I know they got my back. We need to be around people that can speak life into us, that can affirm. And I'm not talking about making up just some arbitrary you know, you know, platitudes. I'm talking about people that can see us and speak life into us. We have been downloaded on our brain, on our heart, on our psyche, lies about who we are. And we have to erase the tapes, but you don't know what to erase if you don't take time to notice them. So one of the assignments necessary for healing, and I used to do this in my private practice all the time, we've got to go back and investigate all the lies that have been downloaded in our mind, even the ones we've believed and the ones we believed are hard to tease apart. Well, what have I been told about me? Who told me that? When I was in high school, I had a teacher tell me, when I said I wanted to be a lawyer, she told me, I think you'd be a better secretary. I'm not gonna call her name out, but yes. What are all the lies that we've been told? You're pretty for 
a dark-skinned person. You're different. You're, you speak so eloquently. Or all the lies that you will not achieve, that you cannot produce, that you aren't as smart, that you can't go to medical school, that you can't be a writer, that you can't open up your own business. Where are the lies? You got to go back and get them. We got to see them. We got to remember who lied, who, who left that message on the tape of our heart. And we got to hit erase, but it's not good enough to hit erase. We got to now download truth. What has the Lord said about who we are? What is the truth of who I am? And that is the stuff we have to chew on and digest. And we have to practice it because many of us have built an entire life, lived an entire life off of lies that are the byproduct of racism and white supremacy. And we've believed lies longer than we believe truth. And we've been accepting the truth of Jesus Christ, but we haven't accepted what Jesus has said about us. Erase and replace. All right, next one. Black love as healing and resistance. We gotta encourage and support black people. Affirm the things about black people that racism lied about. Be friends. Be kind, be brothers and sisters to one another, cheer for one another. Catch yourself not being kind to black people. And I'm even talking about black people with black people. Racism has done such a number on us that we become our own oppressors. We, we make each other victims to our own self-hate. We gotta love, we gotta build folk up. We gotta encourage people. We've gotta notice people who don't have as many resources as we do, emotional, interpersonal resources. I'm, who, who around me doesn't have somebody at home loving on them, speaking to them, hugging them? Go to that sister, go to that brother. Black love is healing and resistance. Engaging in anti-racism work. We gotta know when we need to pull out and we, know, we have to know when we need to pull in. Uh, go in and activism will look different for each person okay and so um calling legislators but whatever it is don't diminish your contribution so we can do community involvement how do you want to use your social media talk to your circle of influence you can send supplies to demonstrators you can donate money to movements um i saw this link that was like um, how to engage in anti-racism work for an introvert. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, you all won't believe me, but I'm literally like an extrovert introvert. Uh, anyway, I'm not gonna get off on me, I ain't got much time. But create posters for people in the movement and let them protest with the posters you made. Join Zoom calls, ta-da, you're here. File police reports, this is a big one. All incidents of racism is tracked, right? Even if you don't feel like it's gonna get a lot of traction or movement or attention. When we experience racism, we should file a police report. If you experience it on your job, file it with HR. All of those things matter. Leave Yelp reviews. All of this stuff is part of self-care. Why? Because it's taking back power. It's saying I'm not voiceless. I do matter. I can contribute. I will resist. All right, um, and lend your voice, but don't waste your energy on trolls. Sometimes what I do, I'm gonna be honest, if I go to the comment sections of people talking crazy um, and I don't feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me to write, sometimes what I do is I find someone who is saying 
something courageously and people are attacking them or whatever and I leave them an encouragement. I like what they said and I build them up. I say, thank you for having the courage to say this or I absolutely agree with you. Or, you know, please don't be harmed by the words that were spoken to you. Know that you're doing the right thing. Something like that. All kinds of ways to resist. Um, I wanna encourage you all to create a family genogram. So I, this is something you all can Google and look up. It's more than a family tree. This traces the physical, mental, and relational trauma. I want you to do a genogram looking at trauma and racism and white supremacy, the presence of racism and white supremacy. So how do you do this? You need to collect stories and experiences from your people and map the stress of life and how racism has impacted your family or impacted you. So you wanna look at whether or not there is a link between racism, stories of racism in, in mental illness, stories of racism in disease, stories of racism in poverty, stories of racism in interpersonal issues, divorce, whatever. And so just to see how people frame their experience and the toll that it's taken on your community. It's a very powerful exercise. And you can Google and look up various ways of doing genograms, but I want you to see the insidious way racism has impacted your direct family. And, and this leads me to the next point in terms of healing, which is to collect the stories and tell your story. And this seems like, oh gosh, does that, is that really healing? But yes, we need to hear the viciousness and we need to hear the victories, right? From your own life. It builds resilience. Why? Because you are here to tell the story. You and your people have survived immeasurable evil. And we thank God. And we need those stories. Become your family historian. Collect narratives, record dates and names and events. Um, family heirlooms and relics, work with other family members, become a historian, appreciate the richness of your family. All of this stuff is healing. Journaling, I like to think of journaling as ventilation for the soul, ventilate the soul through writing. And sometimes what you write is what you can't speak right now. And writing may be the way you unlock uh, deep emotions. It's amazing what comes out through writing that can't find its way out of the mouth. And then as you can, verbally share, unburden the soul. I like to call it vomit up the vitriol. In the cycle of voicelessness, you need safe people that you can do this with or a safe person. And their role is not to fix you, it's not to solve the pain, but to be there and bear witness to you releasing your pain. Next, body work. Um, and this is movement. I wanna talk about movement, massage, and exercise. So we need to, like I said, we have so much pain stored up even in our bodies. We have to learn to move with our emotions. So for some, this is gonna be corny and they don't wanna do it. So it's different strokes for different folks. I'm just giving a plethora of suggestions, but I wanna encourage folks to dance it out. Dance out your pain, dance out your joy, um, exercise it out, find music that will speak to your emotion, present emotion, where you wanna be, 
and move with the music. Um, also, see if you can invest in massages. Um, locate where your stress and pain is. And one of the ways you can do this is something, a technique, a mindfulness technique of a body scan where you just get extremely still and quiet and you, you just start noticing. Mindfulness is about noticing. What do you hear? All your, all your senses. What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you see? What can you taste? Right? What do you feel? Um, and just start to be present with your body, like connect to the body. We are so disconnected from our bodies. We just really are. Um, but we need touch. We need healing touch. And this is not sexualized. Although if you're married, can I just say have sex? Okay. <laughs> like, amen. Some, so he done broke in on an amen on that one. <laughs> if you're married, have sex. And, and not that sex is um, a substitute for all the healing and work that needs to happen, but God has given it as a gift. You know, black love as a resistance, enjoy one another, and then exercise, release power. Oh, so in three forms of exercise, find exercise that's going to release, find exercise that's going to be powerful, power moves, and find exercise that's going to soothe. So sometimes we just need that aerobic release. We need to... Uh, quickly um, sweat. We need to get the heart rate up. And, you know, and sometimes that's the release of the emotion. Sometimes we need power movement. So whether it's lifting, right, some kind of strenuous work where we are feeling empowered as we lift heaviness because we're carrying so much emotional weight. But to have the body participate in that is so um, enriching. And then do exercise or body movement that's soothing. And so for some people, those are stretching or forms of yoga um, or meditative work, but you want to have different ways of moving the body to tap into different emotional and psychological things. Um, Dr. Sarita, we got to wrap up in a little bit. I wanted you okay. to, I want to stop you for a second and have you chime in about the safe spaces thing that you mentioned that we, you and I talked about on the phone about, do um, you remember that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, do you, so do you want people to ask questions now or? Um, yeah, you can. We'll uh, do you, questions. If you want to do questions and then I can just, if you want me to ask the engagement questions, however you want to do it, let me know. Uh, yeah, so I mean, some people are going to have to hop off. Um, okay. But if you have questions, uh, there's a couple already in my inbox um, and uh, we'll, we'll get to those um, right now. One of the things are, one of the questions would likened it to, Kind of the black struggle as uh, almost Daniel and um, being in captivity and kind of some of his rhythms and you mentioned a whole bunch of things that we can do and uh, really quickly we're going to have a, a good set of, uh, of notes for everyone with a lot of the things the points that Dr. Sarita made so please keep those questions coming to my inbox um, uh, let me see and you can put them in the regular chat right now also if I, if I missed a question um, I got so many stuff in, in my chat right now that it's hard to even see what's going on. So if you have any questions for Dr. Sarita, please put that in the, in the regular chat. Um, and I'm going to be looking for, for mine. Sorry, y'all, I ran out of time. So I just, I want to make this useful for you. So if you want to ask questions or however you want to move forward, um, Pastor Rice, um, I'm at your disposal. No, nah, this is good. I mean, I, I wanted to give people who had to get off a time to, to hop off. 
Um, if you wanted to take us through that, um, what have the exercise real quick, and then we can. End okay. From there. Sure. So. Yeah. One please of the, don't don't apologize. This is this has been amazing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your attention. Um, it's so much to cover. Um, and you can't do it all. So I did want to just ask a few questions to engage your own soul. Um, one of the things I talked to Pastor Jordan about was sometimes in sessions like these, when people ask questions, they often ask cognitive-based questions and not effective or emotional-based questions because people don't know to ask those kind of questions. And oftentimes we're very disconnected from our emotions. So that's why you have clinicians to help with that. So I wanted to just ask a couple questions. I can just run through them and then, um, Pastor Jordan, and then if people wanna respond, we can let them respond. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask the group, effective, emotional, I want you to think how I feel, not as much how I'm thinking, all right? And for some people that's harder to do than others. But what might be one, pronounced feeling that you are consistently experiencing when processing racism? What is the most pronounced feeling that you're having? Number two, does your faith ever feel inconvenient for dealing with the pain of racism? Does your faith ever feel inconvenient for dealing with the pain of racism? In what ways has your faith constrained you, like held you back, or freed you in responding to racism? In what ways has your faith constrained you or freed you? Um, in what ways are you feeling vulnerable? And what is one fear that you have? In what way do you feel vulnerable? And what's one fear that you have? Next, what do you wish you could take a break from for self-care that you just think you aren't able to do? What do you wish you could take a break from for self-care that you just don't think you're able to do. When it comes to racism and white supremacy, what deep insecurity is triggered in you? What deep insecurity is triggered in you? Next, do you have thoughts that you would be too ashamed to voice? Do you have thoughts that you would be too ashamed to voice? In what ways have you unhealthily tried to cope and manage your racial trauma? In what ways have you unhealthily tried to cope and manage racial trauma? Next, in what way do you still feel not heard? In what way do you still feel not heard? 
And the second part of that question is, what are you trying to say? And can you name a specific person? You don't have to say it out loud or in the chat, but who is the specific person that's just not hearing you? Or is there a specific person or is it not, but you just don't feel hurt? And the last question, and this is something we do in therapy. It's called the million dollar question. The million dollar question. And it goes like this. If you were to wake up tomorrow and the world looked exactly the way you want it to look, what would it look like? If you could go to sleep and wake up tomorrow and the world looked exactly the way you want it to look, what would it look like? And then part B to that question, is what is one thing you can do to make that million dollar question a reality? Just one, what is one thing you can do? Because one of the things that is imperative for racial healing is learning to dream, learning to dream again, rooting our hope and our faith in the Lord and getting in touch with our gospel dreams, getting in touch with our dreams. So those were the questions that I wanted to pose. Um, and I'll let you take it from here, uh, Pastor Jordan. Wow, these are great. Um, one of the things that I want us to do um, is uh, if you are able to copy and paste these questions, um, do that right now and actually I want you to spend tomorrow some point tomorrow morning or afternoon or at some point after your time in scripture or prayer to go through these questions and to give yourself give yourself some time if you have small children at home maybe this is a 9 p.m. 10 p.m. thing when the kids are asleep or Dr. Sarita you might have some um, some more uh, advice on when to do this but I would love for you all to do this this week um, tonight I'm gonna hop on our Twitter page at Renaissance NYC on Twitter and just put all of these questions on there. Uh, just the last couple of questions that Dr. Sarita mentioned and then we'll have all of the notes that we've been typing and talking about um, in the follow-up email that will probably go out this Friday. But for right now, I would love for you to spend some time doing the hard internal work of answering these questions, not what are you thinking, but what are you feeling? Um, and to put those down on paper, like Dr. Sarita said, there's so many times that things come out um, in writing that we would not have gotten otherwise. Um, and, Doc, and Dr. Sarita, if I'm not mistaken, these are not questions that will be one and done with. This is not going to be something you do once and you're done, you're healed. No. Uh, how, how many, a couple times a year, quarterly, coming back to something like this? Uh, how often would you say to come back to a list like this? I mean, I think the more you do this work, you open yourself up to ask yourself more questions. Um, and you know, I don't think about this in some kind of rigid way as much as getting the ball rolling. Um, one of the things about doing, you know, healing work, trauma work, um, any kind of you know psychological, spiritual work is once you begin, get the ball rolling, more comes. And so sometimes you feel stuck. Sometimes it feels hard. But the more you become psychologically flexible and allow yourself to feel and go there. And sometimes doing the work with someone else, like 
finding a safe person to share some of the answers with. Um, one, it's allowing yourself to be known, you know, to be known, which is, you know, the highest form of intimacy, you know, knowing others and allowing yourself to be known. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't put anyone on a schedule. I would say this is a great start and just see where it goes. Just see where it goes, see what other things come up. Um, rarely do you start down this road and you end with these questions. The, the mind, I believe, is hungry for, you know, the mind is always trying to make sense of what we're experiencing and feeling. And, I, and part of this is to also praying and asking the Lord to unlock parts of our emotions that we're not in touch with. And we're not in touch with emotions for a wide array of things, even though, you know, I mean, I'm not only like a racial trauma therapist. Um, as a clinician, we care about the whole person. And we know that so many people, I mean, there are people I know just based on the statistics and the number of people that are here tonight, that even if it hasn't been racial trauma, people have experienced sexual abuse. I know that. I know that people on this line have experienced domestic violence. I know that there are people on this line who've probably been violated in some way through robbery or um, um, a physical attack. I mean, that's just the wickedness of the world we live in. And the truth of the matter is the more you learn to do your own self work, one of the interesting things is it creates empathy. When you allow yourself to feel your own pain, when you allow yourself to attend to your own soul, when you invite Jesus into those places, it actually opens you up to be able to have a, an ability to feel for so many other people, which is why people who come from some of the most marginalized, abused, harmed groups are some of the most empathic people. People who've been through tremendous pain get pain. And one thing healthy people know is that you don't compare pain. Like you don't say my pain is worse than yours. If you're someone who survived pain, that's something. But it also should be a tool through which you're able to see other people, love other people better, love your neighbor better. Like that's what the scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. So many of us aren't loving our neighbors well because we are riddled with self-hate. And we're riddled with self-hate because we haven't healed from the hate that's been projected onto us. That's so profound. Um, man, you have given us, not nuggets, you've given us a whole chicken to chew on <laughs> and to digest. And man, I think everybody is gonna wanna go back and rewatch this uh, just to reprocess a lot of this stuff. Uh, we hope to have it up on Friday on our YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to that. Um, uh, someone mentioned, uh, if you click on the three the three uh, dots on the on the chat, you can um, save the chat, which will have other questions and a bunch of um, and a bunch of different things. Um, Dr. Sarita, uh, we are so grateful for you um, and just for all the Lord has been. Must my son screaming in the background? Um, uh, we're so grateful for you, um, and you know, yeah, a couple of things that you said that hit the most. Really, one, I do. I think that even I diminish. I try to diminish the pain that I, I feel, and I, I don't want it to have power over me. So I, I engage in some uh, 
defeating things to say, well, you know, it's not that serious, you know, you know, I'm not gonna let it get to me. And in many ways I deny the pain and uh, I'm not, I'm not able to heal or to continue to move forward. So that was, that was profound. So y'all give it up for Dr. Lyons. Keep on giving, giving it up in the, in the comment section. Um, finger snaps, the, all of that. Um, make sure you follow her on social media. Don't blow her up with like 10 million questions. She ain't, she don't got time to be doing all of that, but maybe, <laughs> you know, you know, wait a couple of days and maybe hit her with one or something like that. Um, in two weeks, we're going to have another session, uh, our last one for the summertime. We're going to be having our very own Cedra, uh, and she's going to be giving us some very, very, very practical steps on how do we become people of justice. So we've gotten some history. We've gotten some things on healing that we're going to be processing today. And the next one will be just really practical things of how do we continue to move forward and to, uh, just like Dr. Sarita said, like, what is that one practical step you can do to engage in anti-racism work? And Cedra is going to have uh, a lot of that uh, for us. So, Dr. Sarita, I want to—I don't want to cut you off. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with before we're dismissed? Anything that you thought of? It could be about any, something you said, something that you didn't say, but anything that you want to leave us with. No. Um, well, the one thing in response to something you just said, which is probably very common for people not wanting—you know—kind of minimizing pain. I think that people think that their pain will crush them. Um, so it's like if I um, if I look at it, if I talk about it too much, if I really feel it. So we avoid pain because we think that the pain will like overpower us and crush us. But it's really the avoidance of it that has the detrimental effect. Um, so I just want to encourage everybody to deal with whatever they have to deal with. Um, and I mean, one day, I mean, I'm not like lobbying for another presentation, but I do think- Accepted, we, what do you, tomorrow night, let's do it. No, 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 like, you know, like rage and anger is such a huge thing that we all deal with in different ways. So really learning, like understanding, you know, I do a, a teaching on like the anatomy of anger because I think that part of what, sometimes the reason why we don't wanna face our feelings because all of what we feel doesn't look like pain some of it looks like rage, but if you understand pain, you understand that anger is the tip of the iceberg and all anger is is a buffer for, for more distressing feelings that we don't think we can attend to. And so I just, you gotta go there, just go all the way there, let people in your life that can ask you questions that you feel safe with um, and trust the Holy Spirit, um, trust God that he wants to heal that he wants to deliver, not just individual healing and deliverance, but he wants corporate, he wants communal healing. But remember what we said earlier, we're only as strong as our weakest parts. And so we need to do our individual work because we want collective wholeness, um, because we wanna be a church without spot or blemish when he returns for us. Mm -hmm. And we wanna be a healthy testament to the world mm -hmm. because if the Christians can't get it right, who can get it right? If the Christians can't heal, if the Christians are afraid to talk about the hard things, if, a, if the Christians are afraid to deal with sin and, he, and fight for justice, then like what example are we of Jesus Christ? It's like, please don't tell anybody you're a Christian if you don't want to act like a Christian because we do the most disservice for the name of Jesus. And so part of that is this deep soul work. And so we've slapped the Bible and we've slapped religiosity and religious activity mm -hmm. on a whole lot of emotional stuff that God is calling us to go deep and unearth so that we can really, really experience the abundant life. 
Well, that's, that's wonderful. Well, I'm just letting you know right now, since you have mentioned that you have a part two on the anatomy of anger, <laughs> we don't even have votes, but they're going to vote me out unless you come back and do it. So to, do it. to keep my job safe, please, uh, we, we would love to have that uh, at some point. Um, man, let me pray for all of us. Um, and again, go to the three dots at the bottom right, click save chat, and you'll get the questions that we put. And I would love for you to spend some time this week going through all of them. Dr. Sarita said, you don't have to be, you don't have to go through all of them in order. It does, it's not, you don't have to be pharisaical about it, but to spend some time this week uh, starting this process of looking at those questions, that could be a really good start for us. Um, and also go to our Renaissance, at Renaissance NYC Twitter page, and I'll put the questions on there as well. We pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Dr. Sarita, uh, just for her words to us tonight. We're grateful for her invitation to us to receive your healing, uh, that God that moves through the pain, uh, that doesn't settle for cheap substitutes like anger sometimes. Um, and Lord, we just pray for grace for ourselves as we navigate these waters. Uh, Lord, we pray for a bigger vision and a better creativity and a better imagination of what can happen. But Lord, ultimately, more faith to trust in you along the way, regardless of what happens. So Lord, give us faith, give us patience with ourselves, give us, give us grace. Help us to see ourselves in light of who you say we are, not in what other messages we may receive from the world. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. 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 So I'm going to keep this, the chat open for a little bit, just so you can save it. Uh, please feel free to log off, everyone. But those three buttons at the bottom right on the chat, you can save it. Um, and uh, we can continue to go from here. Love y'all. Have a good night. Bye-bye.